I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 31, Dawn's Wicked Stepsister. <laughs> Pregnant pause. <laughs> I think there's a lot of wickedness in this book, actually. I don't think it's confined to Marianne. Do you think they use wicked as a slang term like in Boston in Connecticut in the 90s? They probably did, but I don't know that Anna Martin did. Wicked stepsister. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. Do you two have your one-sentence summaries? Yes. Um, yep. All right. Mine is Dawn solves everything through an elaborate ruse and then recommends honesty to everyone else. Nice. Yeah. Dawn's really kind of a, a bee in this book, huh? <laughs> Okay, my one-sentence summary is Dawn and Marianne probably shouldn't have shared a room. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, solid recommendation. Uh, My one-sentence summary is a question. Has Dawn always been such a bitch? Bitch? (laughs) Question mark? (laughs) I forgot to give it the right inflection. (laughs) This book really hit me hard. I took it very personally. As a Dawn. I was like, damn, Dawn fucking sucks. Do I suck? That's where I was at. You're going to have to change your self-descriptor. Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking she'd have to change her necklace from I'm awesome to I suck. (laughs) I fucking Mm -hmm. suck. (laughs) I'm a liar. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of self-descriptors, we should probably back up and tell you about members of the podcast. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total bitch and I suck. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. And I'm Anna Chikawa, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. Also, write and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC related, drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. And because everything we do is virtual these days, we learned about a new fun online series called History Happy Hour that makes history accessible, relevant, and fun. Uh, The founder is Maya Rook, who is a historian and educator and takes a deep dive into a new topic every month. And today, March 11th, she'll be exploring 1980s and 90s nostalgia through the portrayal of babysitters in popular culture with media such as Adventures in Babysitting, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, and of course, Babysitter's Club. And since it's Women's History Month, she'll also discuss the historic role of the babysitter and what it tells us about the entrepreneurship of young women. So the event takes place tonight on Zoom. If you're listening to this on our release date, that's Thursday, March 11th, 7 p.m. for the East Coast of the U.S., 4 p.m. California, 6 in Chicago, midnight in the U.K., Friday morning at 11 in Australia, aroundabouts, give or take an hour or two. Damn, so come join us. Math. No, I did it ahead of time. Oh, um, anyway, cheats, I'll be there. I'll be there. I'm going to try to get Anne to come with me too. Emily's teaching, so she will not be there. But Stuck in Stony Brook listeners can get 20% off with the discount code PIZZATOAST. 
So you can register at historyhappyhours.com. We hope to see you all tonight. I was going to say a fun trivia about Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead is that her last name is Crandall in that film. Ooh. <laughs> Liked that a lot as a child. I bet you did. Or whatever age I was when that movie came out. Yeah, <laughs> a mean, child. We we were children. So I feel like maybe you were a very tiny child and you watched it later. What did you guys think of this book? <laughs> I mean, did we really need this book? Uh, I liked it a lot better than Marianne and the Great Romance. Yeah, but... It's just like the same book told from Dawn's perspective, kind of, minus the wedding. Yeah, it's the aftermath. It's yeah. when, when people stop being nice and start being real. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like a tagline for, yeah, damn it, for like a weird reality show. <laughs> <laughs> this is Esme's like, um, no, it's Esme's like blended family reality show. After the, after the wedding, people stop being nice and start getting real. <laughs> Wait. But Emily, do you not know that it is the tagline? For what? It is the... It, no. The, it's, it's for the real world. Oh, really? I watched that show. I don't remember that. Reality show. Yeah, that's, that's the actual tagline for the show. Yeah. Damn. All the Gen Xers that listen to this show are just yelling at you while yeah. you were thinking that I just was clever. No, I was just quoting the real world. Well, you funny. didn't have to tell me that. <laughs> One of the main plots of any real world episode has to do usually with is with a room. When they first get to the house, mm-hmm. they have to choose rooms and then people claim rooms without asking the other roommates if that's okay. Oh, it yeah. kind of kicks off the source of tension for the rest of the season. Which babysitting family or kids would you want to watch as grown-ups on the real world? <laughs> Should we choose our choose a house and some roommates? Oh, you want to put them together? <laughs> yeah. So who would be the most drama? Well, what you you got to get who's the puck? Mm. I mean, Jackie Rodowski's not a puck on purpose, mm-hmm. but he would cause some trouble. I think melodramatic, I got to go with an older Pike like Vanessa or Mal even. Could like mm. stir the pot a little bit, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could put, get, ba- what's her face, prankster in there? Oh, Betsy Sobak. Yeah, Betsy Sobak. We would need to have some diversity in the house. Yeah. So Becca would have to be there to explain what it's like to be black to them. Yeah, it would have to be one of the Ramseys because they're the yeah. only <laughs> yeah. black people in Stony Brook. Yeah. Um, I think Janine would be good in the house to to just be the the foil to a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. maybe Logan. Oh. Oh. Wow. Yes. Okay, I'd watch that. I'd like hate watch it. Right. But then also Bart. Ooh, hot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Okay. This is great. Somebody write this fanfic ASAP. (laughs) And then film it. All right, Emily. Do we have to talk about this book? Fine. (laughs) Um, Okay. So the A plot of this book is that Don and Marianne try to share a room and it doesn't go well. The B plot is that all the Pikes get sick and or injured at the same time somehow <laughs> and they call it yes. is it do they refer to it as the pike plague mm-hmm. oh, i was like did they use the word epidemic or was i just reading it through a covid lens <laughs> yeah no they didn't say epidemic they just uh-huh. said plague they didn't say i, I think i read covid 19 in here somewhere no no yeah <laughs> the unprecedented global pike pandemic yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> and then is there is there a C plot? Not really, right? No, there's a lot of random babysitting. Mm-hmm. But no, nothing with like a necessarily coherent thread like the Pike Plague. Mm-mm. Yeah, so my biggest takeaways in this book were that um, Don and Marianne are really bitchy <laughs> to each other. <laughs> yeah. Don does a super weird lie to sort of resolve their problem, which I'm sure we'll get to in your section as me. But I was like, this seems really problematic to me in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have um, much specific about it. I was just really impressed with her gall to, you know, so she doesn't want to tell Marianne that they shouldn't share a room anymore and they might get along better, much like the Arnold twins in the last book, um, because she's ashamed because it was her idea to make them share a room and she pressured it. So she doesn't, she literally says, I don't want to have to admit that I'm wrong. Um, so it's kind of the opposite of what we've talked about a bunch of times with Christy, how Christy like charges in like a bull, but then is very good at apologizing. Dawn's like, oh, that's the last thing I want to do. Yeah. So instead she calls Jeff and what is the whole plan? And do you remember all of the things that she does to terrify Marianne? Yeah, I was just thinking if I can recall all those things. It's well, it's an elaborate plan where she calls the operator to be like, hey, I think our phone isn't working. Mm-hmm. Can you call me back? And she uses that phone call to pretend it was the Pike family mm-hmm. saying that they needed help that night. I'm going to track how many lies go on. Right. Um, and she also did it when she knew Richard and Sharon were going to be at a PTA meeting that night. Mm-hmm. And then she tells Marianne she's going over the pikes and she goes mm-hmm. into the hidden passage from the barn. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. the, I, what was what was the first thing she did? Did she just make some noise? Yeah, I think she like threw acorns at the door. Oh, that's right. Acorns. The, the passage in her room. So she like apparently had been collecting acorns for a while. She put a bunch of stuff in the passage ahead of time. Like yeah. she just planned it out. It was this big like conspiracy. And then she like, she like opened the door. No, no, no that's she the goes end. to the front doorbell first. Right. And she rings it. And then when Marianne goes downstairs, she uses the opportunity to go into the room. Is that when she puts a bone on her? Oh, bed? rose first. It was so a rose, rose first. Yeah. Fucking weird. And then, and then when Marianne is gone again, she takes the rose away and puts a chicken bone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and I think and somewhere in there, she rings the doorbell again. Right. And basically just terrifies Marianne out of her fucking mind. Yeah. And then Marianne's like, I'm sorry, I can't stay in this room anymore. And Dawn's like, oh, too bad. Sorry. Right. And then she never comes clean. Yeah. But also the fucked up thing to me was that she's like relying on the parents to come home and like convince Marianne that it didn't happen, that she was just like mm-hmm. making it up. I was like, that is so fucked up. And then I was thinking, Ugh, no wonder Dawn was apologizing for Logan a few books ago. She's fucking gaslighting the shit out of Marianne. They're in the they're in the gaslighting Marianne club. Yeah. Right. It meets on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 5:30 until 6. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then and then Don says, "I was sorry I'd scared Marianne so badly, but I knew I'd done the right thing." What? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then it, the thing that really got me though was then they have this meeting, a family meeting at the end of the book to address all of these things that have made their transition challenging, like the fact that apparently Don and Sharon didn't use a silverware organizer before, which to me is like the most questionable thing in this book. They just threw everything in a drawer. I don't know anyone who does that. I haven't met a single person. I know a lot of sloppy people. Like, 
that just seemed that was the least believable thing to me in this whole book. Yeah. So far in the BSC universe, arguably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have this family meeting and then they're they they make some agreements about, you know, vegetarian food and keeping things organized. And then John's like, I have one more thing. I think we just all need to be more honest with each other. Like totally non-ironically. And they're like, thanks, Don. That's a great point. And then it ends there. Yeah. Is this where Don jumps the shark in the series? Yeah, frankly, I'm ashamed. What's the chapter where they have their like non-argument argument before Marianne goes to the dance and Don stays home? Um, chapter eight. Chapter eight. Yeah. In this fight, too, I was like, yikes, yikes, yikes. So much stereotypical, like, catty girl shit. Mm-hmm. Marianne tells Don, when you have a boyfriend, you want to look good for him. Ew. Like, it's bitchy and yucky. That's my official... Very descriptive. Yeah. Yeah. That's my official feminist assessment of this exchange. (laughs) Gross. (laughs) It's good analysis. Good analysis. Yeah. And then Marianne says to Don as she's leaving for the dance, just try to enjoy the evening, Don. Don't think of yourself as someone who can't get a date, okay? It isn't healthy. Ugh. (laughs) Yikes. And they don't really, like, come back to that either. Mm-mm. I don't know. That just, like, stands alone as a a truism in this book. Gotta dress for the job you want, Gotta- you know? A.K.A. the boyfriend. Logan. What did you guys make of this, like, that conversation that Dawn has with Jeff where she's like, oh, you're dependable and predictable. I used to think Marianne was, but now I'm not so sure. Maybe it's because you're my real brother and she's only my stepsister. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a little strange. I mean... It's just another bitchy thing Don says. <laughs> but Marion's not even there to hear it. <laughs> I think that's her just sort of trying to understand where things come from. It's interesting to me that Don wants predictability in people close to her. Um, I feel like that's a little bit like she's the star of the narrative and the supporting cast needs to do what she expects them to. Mm-hmm. Um, which again was kind of a bummer. While I'm not a Don, I think I, you know have a dawn rising and identify with dawn a lot so i was i was bummed out at, at that idea of like why aren't they acting the way i expect them to but i also think that she's just sort of exploring like what what is a family what makes you feel like a family mm-hmm. i mean i have i have a bunch of thoughts on that yeah um so that to me was less bitchy because marianne wasn't there to explore it right she's right. just kind of trying to talk it through with jeff and understand it mm-hmm. yeah it is interesting that she like seems to hold I don't know, like really harsh kind of standards for evaluating Marianne's behavior. I think that like they did, she didn't obviously have when they were just friends. And I'm like, Oh, this like, Mm -hmm. seems like the bird, the like burden of step sibling is like heavy for (laughs) Dawn (laughs) in some sense. Well, I guess for both of them kind of. Yeah. So the other thing that really jumped out at me at this book um, was the Pike plague. (laughs) I was thinking about, Mm like if the babysitters lived in the, during the time of COVID, like what, what would Stony Brook look like? (laughs) It was kind of a question that I had. And I was wondering what you guys thought about that. Like, I don't know, would they even still be babysitting kind of, first of all, like which families would be like still getting babysitters and which families would be like, absolutely not, which kids would be allowed to have play dates and which wouldn't like, which would there be any parents that are like straight up COVID deniers? <laughs> I mean, I have to assume yes. Cause some of them are right. They're all like 
probably a lot of them are Republicans. I don't know. <laughs> Not that those are necessarily coextensive, but right. But they're like H.W. Bush Republicans, which is a very different yeah. brand of than what we're seeing now. I mean, I see Trump flags when I drive through Connecticut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like the Pikes would be like really strict. Don't you think? I mean, even in this book, right? There's like, um, okay, so Mal has chicken pox again, right? Mm-hmm. The triplets have a flu. I think so, yeah. Someone has something broken. I can't yes. remember all their ailments. <laughs> um, and then yeah. Nikki like breaks something too, right? Or he falls falls down and hurts himself somehow. Yeah, sprains his ankle maybe. Yeah, oh, Vanessa yeah. runs her bike into something. Oh yeah. She has a bike accident. Mm-hmm. And then Claire and Margot get like bronchitis or pneumonia or something. I think they just have a cold at some point. But then like both of the parents are also sick somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Mrs. Pike hurt herself playing tennis. Oh, right. Because they're tennis nuts. And then Mr. Pike burned his hand trying to cook dinner. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Daddy stew. Daddy him. stew. Exactly. Ew, I hate Ladies, that phrase. And beans. <laughs> Yeah, but it is interesting so that when the babysitters are, like, taking turns helping them out and they wear masks inside Mm -hmm. when they're, like, um, you know, delivering food or whatever to Mal. And the pikes are pretty – the parents seem like, you know, they make the kids run all the errands. Like, the babysitters don't even go in the upstairs. When they're in the house, they wear a mask. I was like, wow, this is, like, really weird to read right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also easier for the pikes – to be strict with a shelter in place, right? Because there are eight of them. Like, right. they'll drive each other crazy, but they have other kids to play with. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I wonder, you know, if the Johansons would try to find somebody for Charlotte to pot up with. Right. That would make sense. Do you think the babysitters would still be babysitting? I what mean, happens to the club? Not. I know. They hold Maybe Zoom they meetings. Doing, they probably start Zoom sitting to like occupy kids while their parents are working. Oh my God. They do like Zoom classes. Like, yeah. Oh, that yeah. sounds awful. Yeah. Claudia <laughs> drops off like art supply packets at all the kids' houses and then teaches them how to do something over Zoom. Yikes. It's what a lot of kids are doing right now. Poor kids. It must suck to be a kid I right know. now. So bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's not fun. Yeah, that's kind of like what I was thinking about all during this book. <laughs> I was like, this is this is dark. This took a dark turn for me. <laughs> Did um, Mariah Perkins's letter to George H.W. Bush cheer you up? No, but clearly the Perkinses are Republicans. Like she only likes H.W. because her parents do, right? I mean, she's seven. Mm-hmm. Ugh, so disappointing. I didn't want them to be Bush voters. No. Well, but don't you think as a seven-year-old, potentially in in 1990, that Mariah just knows that the president is in charge and maybe just wants to write to the president and doesn't necessarily have a lot of knowledge of that it is H.W. specifically? She doesn't need, she wouldn't necessarily need to say that he's doing a good job unless she had some reason to think that that's a view that people hold, you know? I mean, like, I certainly in our households, in our family, you like talking nice about the president is not something you normally hear. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. 
when I was seven, I definitely wouldn't have been sending a letter to Ronald Reagan saying, keep up the good work. Absolutely not. <laughs> if I tried to, your grandmother would have burned it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and my favorite thing that Grandma Lexi did was in 2008, she signed all of her emails, Grandma for Obama, like a single, like with dashes. <laughs> um, do you do you think that maybe you're going to say no, but here's my attempt at uh, Mariah apology. Uh, do you think that maybe she was saying keep up the good work because he actually did raise taxes, even though he had promised not to? Oh, my God. Wow. No, the Perkinses are definitely mad about their increased property tax. Fair enough. Don't Fair you enough. think? Yeah, likely. But who is it? I know. <laughs> I look. I love paying taxes in theory. I don't understand why I personally have to pay so many. But <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and taxes are great. <laughs> I do like taxes. I like schools and roads and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I would be. I would love to like read. I maybe I'm just need to go into more of Babysitters Club internet fan fiction hole because I feel like there needs to be some attention to the adults in this universe and like actually. I feel like sometimes I tend to broad stroke paint them all as having the same politics just because it was the late '80s, early '90s, and they live in rural Connecticut. <laughs> So I have a sense of kind of what that means broadly, but I, there's surely there's some disagreements, right? I mean, we know the Pikes are like liberal, yeah, but also they have eight kids, so like I don't know, I like I want to know which of the parents hate other parents. Uh, yes, you know what I mean. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like who hates the Pikes? Someone's got to hate the Pikes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like people don't like Stacy's mom. Mm. Yeah, we've seen some shade there too mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. yeah, she's too she thinks she thinks she's so fancy coming from the big city mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> all right emily you got anything else no uh, this book really bummed me out <laughs> i was like yeah, god i'm so just, depressed you're still coping you're yeah. still coping with the portrayal of dawn dawn betrayed me <laughs> i was really interested in the blended family stuff to, mm. to pull back out to actual psychology because i think we we talked about it some when Watson and Elizabeth got married, but that was really much more about Christie's transition. And there weren't, I think, because the kids are different ages and it's more spread out. And it's not as it, it's also a bunch of kids that are sort of already used to being in a chaotic family. And I think, frankly, Watson and Elizabeth did a much better job preparing the kids for the transition and like acknowledging that it was going to be a transition. Mm -hmm. Whereas it seemed like Richard and Sharon were doing a little bit of magical thinking, like you guys are already best friends. It's going to be great. You know? Um, So I wanted to look at the literature. I know we've talked before about how there's no kind of one way to divorce, but there's the pretty good literature on making blended families work and kind of how does it, how do people adjust to um, remarriage and being in a step family and, um, what does that look like over time? And it be- before the 80s gen- and into the mid 80s, the prevailing view in psychology was that divorce and remarriage for kids were both what they called universally handicapping events, Oh, meaning that they were just bad news for everybody. Um, it, it would be a big transition and ha- lead to problems in individual adjustment for kids. So difficulty with mood, poorer grades, like it was just you're taking a big risk, basically. 
Um, and then in 1991, this, um, Psychologist Lisa Boreen and her colleagues found that what actually predicted adjustment was family conflict. And so um, people that had lower conflict and actually worked on communication and things like that, um, kids had a quicker transition and their adjustment was fine over the period of becoming a blended family. Um, they also looked at the fact that there is transition periods um, and that both for divorce and remarriage pretty much everybody goes through some transition, um, but that it's much shorter for remarriage than they thought. So it takes about mm -hmm. three years for most kids to really deal with a divorce and get used to the idea and kind of get back to their, whatever their baseline level of functioning was. Mm -hmm. um, it only takes about one year for most remarriages. So um, they're not exactly the same on kind of the stress scale. Um, there is a That's literal stress scale. <laughs> really? How high yeah, am so I on it? Um, so, well, we could find out if you want. Back no, in the 60s, these, <laughs> these two psychiatrists, Holmes and Ray, created um, what they call what's now called the Holmes and Ray stress scale. And it just um, assigns a number to all of these different life events. So for adults, the one that's at the top is death of a spouse. Um, and that's 100. Um, and then things go down from there. And there's a separate one for kids that was developed a few years later with death of a parent and also unplanned pregnancy or abortion at the top. Um, that is 100. Yeah. Um, but uh, divorce is the second highest one for adults. Um, whereas, and that's at a 73. And marriage is at a 50. Um, so it's, it's not just bad things that cause stress. It's just kind of any life transitions that cause stress. So, uh, you know, uh, as, as you all know, lots of these, lots of things do that, right? Buying a house is ostensibly a good thing for most people, but it's a stressful process. So, um, you just had that example on the tip of your tongue there. <laughs> it, was on the, it was on the list. I'm not buying a house right now. I'm selling a house. Um, <laughs> it was literally on the list. Anyway, so I, uh, another study that I thought was really interesting, um, this is a 2001 study from Braithwaite and colleagues, wanted to look at what is the developmental process for, quote unquote, becoming a family. So like, when do people feel like they're a family after a change like this? And so they did a qualitative study where they did these extensive interviews with step parents and stepchildren, teens and young adults and their parents. Um, and then they looked at the data in aggregate and they found three different things that sort of predicted better adjustment and quicker, um, quicker time to becoming a family, which I'm putting in quotes that the podcast audience can't see, but there's <laughs> quotes there. Um, so one was just boundary management. So thing, which means basically being clear about whose job is what and acknowledging that there's some changing things. So if we think back to Christy asking Charlie, like, can I ask Watson for money for a VCR, right? Like having those discussions and figuring out who do you go to for what and what the, what the story is. Families, in, when individual family members are higher on adaptability, that also predicts better outcomes. That's mm -hmm. not surprising, right? So um, with Marianne's sort of rigid definition of how her life should be, it's going to be harder for her than theoretically for the Schaefer's who are a little bit more easygoing about things, right? Are they though? Um, and then let's return to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think less than we had hoped, yeah. <laughs> but th that would be my prediction before this book, right? Mm -hmm. And then the last category was, was called solidarity, which I really liked. And it's sort of like how invested is everybody in the family in becoming a family, 
Like, are they sort of thinking about it as we're in this together? We're going to, you know, this is our goal. Yeah. Um, and families who scored higher on each of those three had a better, you know, outcome, better sense of becoming a family. And there's all these different, they graphed all these different things. I sent, I sent you both a picture of sort of these different patterns of becoming a family where some people stagnate and they never really endorse that. Some people believe it a lot at the beginning of the marriage and then it declines over time, which is pretty sad. Whereas other people, it takes a long time, but it sort of steadily goes up over time. And so just thinking about what can you do about this as like parents that are remarrying and wanting to help your own adjustment and help your teens. Um, it seemed to me that, again, the big difference between the brewers and this situation was just the amount of work that they did before the marriage. And I kind of feel like there's sort of a parallel to, you know, there's some people that get pregnant and come home with a newborn and then they're like, oh, I don't know what to do here. And there's other people that like to spend a lot of time with friends, newborns or take classes or do other things so that they actually know what to expect when the baby arrives. And I feel like the Spears and the Schaefer's like did the equivalent of like mm -hmm. just picking up like the adoption agency called and they had a baby and they had never had one before. Like they just went in totally blind. And so it's not really surprising to me that it's a little sh this idea of becoming a family is a little shaky to them. It sort of lines up with the data. When you were talking about the solidarity dimension, I was thinking about how many like custom bespoke beanies I have for various friend groups that I'm a member of. <laughs> solidarity got to be invested oh in the God. family <laughs> sorry is my millennial showing <laughs> yes <laughs> Anne's just being silent but she she made this like deeply confused face <laughs> so what do you what do you what do you both think any any questions on that stuff or does it ring true for blended families that you know well, you know, what's interesting to me is that like, I, I feel like adaptability came up on something else that we've talked about some other, mm -hmm. um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was a factor in some other mm -hmm. evaluative framework or whatever. And it strikes me as kind of interesting that like, can you, I know you're a behaviorist, so like, I, I think your answer would be yes, but like, can you become more adaptable <laughs> to things? I don't know. Like, like yeah, if, I, if like, if part of what, why this research is interesting is because it offers a guide for like how to do these things better so that people have, you know, better outcomes with them than like, uh, you know, having that as a sort of goal or, or, um, I don't know, a thing that would help, right, is kind of interesting to me. Yeah, I don't know that that's the goal of these researchers, mm -hmm. right? So that's always going to be my lens because I'm a clinical psychologist. So mm -hmm. I'm going to take the basic research and try to apply it in some way. Mm -hmm. um, but this it was just basic developmental research. So they may have just wanted to sort of describe something without any intent to, to change it. Mm -hmm. um, my answer to like, can you become more adaptable would be yes and no. Right. You know, tem temperament is a thing. Some people are going to be more adaptable than other people. Um, and I think there are certain things that you can reinforce and prioritize to help increase your adaptability. Mm -hmm. In the same way as we see, you know, Marianne and Richard starting to do, you know, later in the book, um, they're figuring out how to blend the households. Um, but I think a, a commitment to trying to be adaptable is different than kind of temperamentally being adaptable. Yeah, that makes and sense. So I think if you, if you know that that's helpful and will 
help the greater outcome and make you feel like more of a family and help everybody get along, then you may be more likely to try to go along with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The boundary management thing strikes me as true with like blended families that Mm -hmm. I know. I feel like even if right, the boundary, like I think in either direction, whether the family is like becoming a more, traditional like formal family with a new like new parents or whatever or whether the boundaries are like no we're gonna kind of stay separate which we've talked about before a little bit too like that that resonates as something that I think I've seen mm-hmm. now I'm like am I adaptable <laughs> Don's got me all up in my head today man <laughs> oh no I feel like we knew a lot of divorced families but I don't I'm trying to think if we knew a lot of blended families growing up. Uh, Courtney Johnson. That's the one person I could think of. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of remarriage. I feel yeah. like it was a lot of people just going back and forth between mom and, and like, maybe like dad has a girlfriend, mm-hmm. but it's not like right. you're not moving in with other kids. Kind yeah. Of hmm, yeah. Interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. I can't really think of anybody either. Hmm. <laughs> All right. That's what I had. That was was my main psychology stuff. Um, Wait, what about the question of if, if Don is a psychopath? uh, (laughs) Yeah. I don't think we have evidence for psychopathy yet other than like how, you know, how thoroughly and easily she held that lie while she told Mm -hmm. other people to be honest. I think it's a like little tick in the box, but it's only the first tick in the box is definitely not enough. What about a sociopath? There's also, yeah, the, so those words aren't different. Um, they, they mean the same thing. But also the data is, is real fuzzy on both of those things. Not a, not a diagnosis, um, just a way to label people. So we maybe later in the series we'll be able to take a deep dive into psychopathy, but I, I think we have pretty thin grounds to do that today. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> Sorry. I feel like Emily's having... A- an identity crisis right now. Yeah, honestly, I am down in front of our eyes. Yeah, Stony Brook. It's, it's we're we're worried about her. People should send her encouragement about Dawn because she's she's it's rough today. I don't know. Also, Dawn, like the fact that she thinks she did the right thing and she doesn't know that she sucks is the thing that scares me the most. <laughs> I completely see how that is the thing that scares Emily Crown. <laughs> you tend to be pretty pretty pure and strong in your convictions. So what if they suck? That, like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, solidarity forever. <laughs> this just turned into Esme giving me therapy. <laughs> Help. Yeah. <laughs> Help me, I'm a Don. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I also think it's interesting that, like, Sharon and Richard don't really seem to know each other that well. I don't know if, like, that plays into this, this you know, becoming a family dynamic that you're talking about. Maybe that's a a bit of both, like, boundary management and sort of solidarity maybe but I was like well and it must be hard I'm thinking like it's hard it's probably hard for them not to assume that they do know each other you know they're high school sweethearts they dated for like three years in high school Mm -hmm. they grew up together and so I'm thinking like if if I got back together with one of my boyfriends from high school now 
Like, would I think that I knew a lot of things? But also, you know, 25 years have passed. So I obviously I there's a more than half of their life that I don't know. And right. so I'm wondering if they're kind of making assumptions mm-hmm. a bunch on who they were, because on one level, they know each other in a way that other people can't know them. But they also don't know enough, probably, about mm-hmm. sort of their continued development across adulthood. Yeah, but also like stop making her bacon for breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can we go back to the part of the book where Don lists like how Richard's like crazy neat? Oh, yeah. And just go like what we think of him. Okay. Yeah, as our resident slob, lead us through this. Anna. Yeah. So Don says, I've never seen anyone <laughs> as neat as Richard. And he's not just neat, he has these systems for everything. One of them being organizing his books into categories, such as fiction, nonfiction, poetry, plays, and reference. That's not weird. I mean, not if you want to be able to find your books. Exactly. And he says the books are arranged alphabetically, according to the author's last name. I mean, that's great. I I may not do it myself just because I may not take the time, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's crazy. Do you want to know why I don't do it? Yeah. I don't like how it looks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I arrange my books by category, by genre, and then by uh, what's aesthetically pleasing to me. Yeah, that's still a system, though. But, like, you don't think it's crazy to have a system? No, no. I think it's crazy to not have a system. To just have, like, books on a shelf is... That's that's psychopathy. (laughs) Okay. Okay. He also arranges his clothes not only by type. Okay. Okay, By type seems like a thing he would want to do, yeah. But Mm -hmm. by color. Oh, I do that in my closet. I'm just envious of him. That's, like, home edit shit, right? Like. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people do that or, or, or aspire to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is, the, this is the part that gets Esme. For the first time ever, there are dividers in the kitchen drawers. So we have a place for the spoons, a place for the forks, etc. I just, that is the psychopathy in this book. Yeah. More than Don's lie. Yeah. By far. Like, I don't. What? Yeah. So it's just like one big drawer with stuff in it. Yeah. That's that's insane. Um, the refrigerator's organized because he has special folders in it. So we have certain spots for eggs and cans of seltzer. Great. Not, yeah. Envious. I mean, yeah. A lot of fridges come with that kind of stuff these days anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wait, he also, it, does, does Sunbeam make a fridge like that? Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm going to bring up Sunbeam later. <laughs> It all comes full circle. Um, So, okay. He reads the newspaper in a certain order. Wow. I I think most people do that. He has interests. Comics first. Um, That's kind of cute, actually. That's like a nice Richard Spear software. uh, No, no, that's me. That's Anne. (laughs) Yeah. Come on, Asmi. (laughs) Everyone reads them in an order. (laughs) Comics first and only. Well, comics and horoscopes, then maybe like the word jumble. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, and he makes a certain amount of coffee because no one else drinks it except for him. So he doesn't like to waste resources. Right. So, yeah, Don is, um, I thought Don was supposed to be organized and pretty neat. Yeah. This is another part of her identity crisis. I'm like, who is, who is yeah. Don? Who is Don even? Who am I? 
I can't do this anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, doesn't she like fuck up one of his ties or something? His socks. His socks. Yeah. That's a, just me. She's mean. like a bitch and like puts one sock in the wrong place because it's like organized by color. Mm-hmm. That's really mean to do to an organized person. He's going to drive himself crazy thinking that he did it and didn't remember as a person who would also yeah. react that way if someone moved my socks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm looking at both of you. Um, so my yeah. couch pillows that have Connecticut and California on them, of course, California is on the West coast of the couch and Connecticut's on the East coast of the couch. And my old roommate, Alex used to leave for work like before I would wake up in the morning and every morning he would just switch the pillows before he would leave the house to put Connecticut on the West coast and California on the East coast of the couch. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it doesn't bother me as much Psychopathy. as you think it does. I just get up and the first thing I do is put them back. <laughs> just walk around the house, putting everything back. <laughs> Neither of you could live with me. <laughs> yeah. The one time I went to your apartment in Brooklyn, it was, it was neat. Well, I've had to work over the years to like, I've had to train myself to be mm. neat. Yeah. So I'm good at having acquired skills that make me a normal human being. But, you know. <laughs> she doesn't have all the silverware jumbled up in a drawer with no oh, dividers. No. That's crazy. All right, Anne, what do you have for okay. us Okay. I wonder if any of our listeners don't have drawers, dividers in their silverware drawers. Actually, so. yeah, thank you. I would really like to hear from people if this is your method. Like, I would like a picture that you can send us at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com, mm-hmm. or you can message us, uh, send us a DM and Instagram. I, I really would love to see people that this is your drawer system. I Unless they have, like... Are. I want to know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> As we, it's so creepy. <laughs> I, just, I just can't understand it. And and if you have a reason, if you have like a rationale that explains why you do it, like why you like that better, I'm really interested because I just I, I usually am pretty good at perspective taking. It's part of my professional responsibility, but I just can't understand this. So I'm curious. Same. Ditto. Okay, Anne. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to think of a reason why you wouldn't have them. Maybe it's like. I don't know, like a game or something. I like I like mystery I when I open my drawers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Maybe it's like, what am I going to find today? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, um, when Claudia is babysitting the Pikes when they're all sick, and Mallory's also sick, Mallory's a little whiny, um, but at one point, Claudia suggests to her, if she's bored, why don't you watch TV? And Mallory says, oh, there's nothing on TV. It's all reruns or boring talk shows. Which I was like, well, first of all, talk shows were pretty entertaining. Like we watched, I watched a lot of talk shows in the 90s. There were so many talk shows. Then I realized I was like, oh, it's 1990. Mm -hmm. And then I started doing some research. And I realized kind of like the heyday of the trashy, um, talk show really didn't start till 1991. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Um, in 1990, the talk shows that were on were Phil Donahue, which would be boring to Mallory. <laughs> uh, Sally Jesse Raphael mm-hmm. also would be boring. Do you know who these people are, Emily? Uh, absolutely not. No. 
Okay. Well, you know who you know who Oprah is. Who? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Geraldo. She has a book club, right. correct? So those were. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm actually kind of impressed that there's only one white man in that, like the four most famous talk shows at that time. Yeah. That's that's kind of Im- incredible to me that mm-hmm. there's like a Latinx dude and a mm-hmm. black lady and another and a white lady. Like mm-hmm. you would just assume anything that's like the most famous people yeah. in the 80s and 90s is like mostly white people. I know. But, but isn't there also, I don't know, a kind of, I, I feel like I hear talk shows kind of get dismissed as like women's nonsense so like in in other kinds of popular culture like i I feel like that's a common sitcom trope or whatever like oh those ladies with their daytime talk shows or whatever so like in that sense it's not totally surprising Mm -hmm. well actually one of the things i read about why kind of like talk shows became less popular over time was one was that um like reality tv shows started becoming more popular Mm. And that sort of replaced the need for that, like, interpersonal drama to play mm-hmm. out. Um, and also about just how more women started working. Yeah. And it's, like, the same thing with soap operas. Like, it kind of became less popular um, over time because the viewership wasn't there as much. Right. People weren't home during the day. Yeah, like, exactly. putting it on in the background while they're mm-hmm. cleaning and things like exactly. that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it wasn't until a year later, 1991, that the kind of like the most famous talk shows of the, of the nineties started. Um, Esme, can you try to name? Yeah. How many are on the list here? Well, I just put on the most famous one. So five. Okay. Jerry Springer, Mm -hmm. Montel Williams, Mm -hmm. Ricky Lake, Mm -hmm. Maury Povich. Mm -hmm. The last one's, the last one's a little bit, harder but you'll remember yeah. once i tell you okay jenny jones oh of course jenny yeah. jones jenny i liked jones. jenny jones yeah it was good yeah emily just is like has left the room basically no yeah. i are you talking about no i'm laughing because i think this is like the third episode where we've talked about in maury povich <laughs> really really yeah. When is oh, Emma? you know what? We talked about Maury Povich because him and Connie Chung live in the Dakota. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, we didn't talk about his show. We just Not talked right. about his real estate holding. We right? just like yeah. mentioned him, but this is in multiple episodes now. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So if this was like a year later, Mallory yeah. would have had a lot of content to choose from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I want to talk about some famous incidents from these talk shows. Okay. So one really famous one was Geraldo mm-hmm. when he featured like um, Nazis, white, like white power skinheads. Oh, yeah. And this brawl happened on TV and Geraldo got his nose broken. So right. that was pretty, the, the image of Geraldo with like a broken nose is like pretty mm-hmm. iconic, I would say. Yeah. Um. Another one is, uh, well, Maury Povich. Do you remember what he was really famous for? He did He did a lot of the paternity tests, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. So, so he like, did this. Who's oh, your baby's dad? You're right? not the father. So there'd be, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that became his kind of what he became famous for. But, you know, he actually started out as a more serious mm-hmm. kind of 
talk show host. Um, and then as time went on, it just kind of devolved into Follow that. the money. Yeah. Follow the money. And then Jenny Jones, um, she had an episode where it was about same-sex secret crushes. Mm. Do you remember this? This this is actually really awful. But, Sounding um, familiar, but I don't. So a gay man confessed his secret crush on his one of his good friends. Mm. And on, on the show, the guy just kind of played it cool and like laughed it off. But like three days later, he murdered him. <gasps> Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, that's horrendous. Yeah. And, up. and it turns out that he had like a history of mental illness. And also he had a history of like alcohol and substance abuse. Jeez. Um, oh, and then the murdered man's family sued the show. And Jenny Jones basically admitted that they led him to believe that it was going to be a woman confessing his crush, even though they knew that it was going to be a man. And the family was paid like $25 million. Wow. Yeah. So that's wild. That's pretty so sad. I know. It's that's it's awful. <sighs> um, it's almost as depressing as this book, Dawn's Wicked Stepsister. <laughs> oh, Emily. <laughs> Stop making you the star in the narrative. I can't. I can't. <laughs> Man. Anyway. But to what end year was a little that? bit more, yeah. uh, I think it was 95. 95, interesting. I think so. Um, yeah, 95. 95. And then to kind of bring it back to more podcast-relevant topic, um, <laughs> there's a book called Freaks Talk Back by someone who is actually um, a professor, professor at University of San Francisco. Hmm. Um, his name is Joshua Gamson. Mm-hmm. Um, he graduated from Berkeley. Um, and so the whole the whole book is about how these like these tabloid talk shows of the 90s actually did a lot for media visibility for gay bisexual Mm -hmm. transsexual and transgender people like more for the mainstream more than any other form of media i believe it because a lot of people just didn't thought they didn't know any gay people well exactly yeah so i'm actually kind of interested to read that book now yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, I'm wondering if it's also, I mean, obviously this is a, a problematic in a lot of other ways too, because I know that many of those things reified stereotypes about like mm-hmm. African-American people and other people of color as well in a really bad way. Um, but I wonder if the humanizing element is also helpful, mm-hmm. even as stereotypes are reinforced. Because there's this thing in in cultural psychology called the contact hypothesis, which is basically you can't, st- it is it is much harder, of course, you always can, but it's much harder to stay racist or prejudiced in some way against a group if you have contact with members of that group. Mm-hmm. Like it's much easier if you are only around other white people to vilify black people, for instance, mm-hmm. than if you actually have contact day to day in your neighborhood with people who are black. And so I'm wondering if that's sort of like a contact hypothesis by distance Mm-hmm. Um, thing yeah. for LGBTQ people. I mean, I can certainly say that talk shows were my main like exposure to others or people <laughs> yeah. to others. You know, mm-hmm. like in the early '90s. Like, I don't know where else I would have seen that mm-hmm. on TV. Like, it wasn't yeah. on like you know primetime television. Yeah, not yet. Nope. 
Yeah, and like public opinion in the early 90s at least is very like anti, you know, gay marriage, anti like mm-hmm. pro sodomy laws, like all that kind of stuff. So that would mm-hmm. make sense that or that like thinking about that talk show visibility might help to account for some of that shift during that decade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. What's Claudia eat in this book? Um, that's a weird way to say that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I have done M&M's and crackers, but I feel like it's not M&M's and crackers. I feel like it's Tootsie Rolls and pretzels. Wait, hold on. You're just... <laughs> I'm confused. Wait, why? You think you left M&M's and crackers in from last last week? I think so. Okay. I'll look at last week and see. Uh, yeah, it says M&M's and crackers. Okay. So you got some notes there to say what it actually is? No, I think it's actually Tootsie Rolls and pretzels. Okay. Still no still no Twinkies. No, no, no Twinkies. Oh, man, I can't wait till they eat Twinkies. I'd like to say that when um, Claudia goes to the dance, she says she's wearing a necklace made out of candy. Mm-hmm. Maybe like this. <laughs> Anne's just holding one set of Haribo cherries up to her chest. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't yeah, eat a like- Haribo cherry right now. <laughs> Oh, there's some candy Emily likes. Yeah. I like gummies. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Tally. These don't have book. weed in them, though, Emily. So. <laughs> oh, well, never mind then. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before I get to our regular tallies, there were two um, descriptors that I thought were interesting that we haven't seen before. One was that Dawn described Stacy as funny which I was really pleased to see because I find Stacy funny. She's mm-hmm. one of my favorite narrators. Um, and I think she's, you know, quippy. She's clever. So mm-hmm. that was cute to see there. And then um, she describes Claudia as having no interest in sports, which seems counter to what we've recently learned about Claudia's master skier abilities. Yes, Wait, there's some inconsistencies. Yeah. She says Claudia has no interest in sports. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the controversy continues. Yeah. Dawn's just paying attention to Dawn. She doesn't even know these girls. Um, anyway, <laughs> she describes herself and her family as health nuts twice. One bossy, one almond eyes, two shy and one sensitive for Marianne. And she does call herself an individual. I think this is the first time that Dawn refers to herself as an individual. I'm kind of an individual. Yeah. <laughs> Dawn's very alpha. <laughs> Dawn sucks. <laughs> Okay. This whole episode is just Emily's identity crisis. Uh, That's what we should title it. I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I really liked when Claire, when they're playing hospital and she says, um, like all the, it's hard to play with two people because you have to play all the different parts. And one of the parts is x-ray person. For some reason that made me laugh a lot. I was like, x-ray person. (laughs) First of all, like, I guess she would know that because, um, one of them just had to get an x-ray ostensibly for breaking or spraining their wrist or whatever. But I thought it was interesting that it's like not gendered, which is kind of funny. (laughs) Well, but what would the gendered title for an x-ray technician be? I don't know. An x-ray lady. (laughs) Okay. X-ray chick. X-ray chick. Yeah. X-ray bro. How about you, Anne? Um, I have a line, but I forgot to add that I want to make a note of something in the book. When um, Jesse and Christy are helping out the Pikes, 
Mm -hmm. And they talk about making breakfast for everyone. Mm -hmm. And they say, Mel scrambled a dozen and a half eggs in two huge frying pans. Jesse made toast after piece of toast. Okay, so (laughs) how many pieces of toast? It's like, how many people are needing toaster? Because I feel like Christy maybe brought over some of her toasters. <laughs> you think instead of the kid kit, she showed up with an extra sunbeam? Yes. Oh my god, I can't like, believe I didn't notice that. That's or like five sunbeams from like their basement from their stock of a surplus of just leftover sunbeam appliances. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> Probably. Mm-hmm. Anyway, had to be a sunbeam. My favorite line was a Pike nightmare. Explanation point. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I had two that were just awkward. One was right at the beginning. I forget who's Dawn's describing, but she says, what sore heads? And I just feel like there's no 13-year-old ever that would use the phrase sore head. Um, So that kind of reminded me of Club of Fools. Like it was just Mm -hmm. like, what? Um, And then... Uh, I actually had three, but they're not all they're not all winners. Um, I like they they're asking Mallory at the end about her chicken pox and she like blushes and says that she still has sores in unmentionable places. Yeah, what does that even mean? <laughs> like what? I, just, I was like, just, like on her pubis. I don't know. Butt crack. Like, uh, yeah. Butt crack. Yeah. I was thinking like in her butt crack, <laughs> like by her anus. <laughs> Thanks, Anne. By her anus. (laughs) Unmentionable places. And then I also liked um, Dawn translating, saying dish means gossip. Mm. Thanks, Dawn. What a bitchy thing to say. Uh, (laughs) uh, I like sore heads. Yeah. What sore heads? Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. What are you thinking? Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a, it's kind of, it makes me feel weird, that word. Yeah, I don't like it. It sounds kind of gross. That's why it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Thor. Oh, that she's talking about her grandparents saying that Richard came from the wrong side of the tracks. Mm, What soreheads? soreheads? Indeed. Um, (laughs) Soreheads. We also call them bourgeois, you know, bosses. (laughs) Uh, What should we pizza toast to? The proletariat? Solidarity forever? Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Jeff bouncing as soon as he possibly could. What about yeah. what about vaccines? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Kids don't get the chicken pox anymore. We're, yeah. we're getting political yeah. on this show. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I'll pizza toast Whoa. to vaccines. Okay. Great. Pizza toast to vaccines. To vaccines. To vaccines. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anne and Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for. <laughs>